Father, help us now pay attention to your word as spoken to us through your disciple James. I ask this in the name of Jesus, Lord, so that we may be more like him. Amen. I wonder if you've ever noticed, as I have, as someone who was raised in a local church, how ironic it is that Christians who have peace with God have so much trouble getting along with one another. Anybody ever else, anybody else ever made that observation? See, the message of the gospel, which is more than a genre of music, gospel literally means good news. Probably be a great help to us if we would remember that. Every time you see the word gospel in your Bible, they didn't really translate it. They took an old English word and, and just put it there. The literal meaning is the good news. The good news of the Bible in all of its 1,189 chapters, 66 books, three different languages, about 40 different human authors, most of whom never, of course, met each other, writing across about 1,500 years of time. All of that is the orchestral, perfect, masterful, holy Word of God to us, and all of it is good news. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus. The New Testament announces His birth, His perfect sinless life, His death, His resurrection, and that by that sacrifice, people like you and me can be rescued from sin and brought into the very family of God. And now you have peace with God. That's the gospel message. That in Christ there is for you now no more condemnation. That guilt and shame were both crucified with Christ as if He were the guilty party. He wasn't, but He took our place. He was our substitute and our Savior. And because of that, you have peace with God. Is that the most amazing thing you've ever heard? See, here's the danger. You hear it so often that it becomes commonplace. But no, you have the creator of the universe, eternal, unmade, who chose to make himself known both in writing and in a person, his son Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, he chose to seek you and to love you and to forgive you in that way when you weren't looking for him. If you know God, if you have love for God, if you've come here this morning because you know it's right and you want to worship God and learn from God and love Him and become more like Him, there's only one reason for all of that. It's because of His great grace and because you believe the good news because He gave you a heart to do it. And because of all that, you have peace with God. You no longer will ever face God as your judge you now know God as your Father. God's favorite way of revealing Himself to us is the image and the reality of God being our own Father and not the abusive, neglectful dad that perhaps you've known or heard about, not the one who is distant and difficult, not the one who is harsh and vengeful. No, this is the Father that your child's heart always longed for. The security, the strength, the peace, the wisdom, the provision, the wealth, all the things that you had hoped as a child to find in your heavenly Father, you found in God Himself, and you have peace with Him. That's the good news. That's the message of the gospel. Why then is it so hard for those who have peace with God to get along with other members of the family? Have you noticed? I'll 
ask you the question I asked the first service. Did any of you have any trouble with any other Christians this week? If they're sitting beside you, don't look at them at this moment. That won't be the slightest bit helpful, but did you? Yeah, it's hard. Anybody ever have trouble in a church? Anybody ever have trouble in this church? If you haven't, stick around. It'll happen. It's all God's sons and daughters loved by Him, at peace with Him, but having all kinds of trouble with each other. And one of the romantic, unbiblical, immature views that sometimes people have of the first Christians was that they all got along great. That their faith was so real, so fresh, so wonderful that they just spent all day loving God and loving each other. That is not the way it was, and I can show you. Please look in your Bibles. We're in James chapter 4. Verse 1, let me remind you that James is writing to Jewish believers who have been scattered by persecution. Their faith in Jesus has started to cost them. They've been scattered. They've been separated from their families and their homes. And in some ways, perhaps that brought them together, but not all the, not all the time. Not according to James chapter 4, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, please find one near you. We have 12 verses in front of us. You'll learn and understand much more, I hope, if you have the Bible open in front of you. James chapter 4. And if you've ever had the experience, maybe you've asked yourself the question, what is the problem? Why is this so hard? Why, if we all love Jesus and love why do we have such a hard time loving each other? James has the same question for us. James 4 verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Whoever these Christians are, wherever they're living, this suffering that has come against them has not brought them together very well. It's actually, James says, caused quarrels and fights. And James is asking a rhetorical question. He's asking a question because he already knows the answer and he wants them to see it too. If you're not familiar with rhetorical questions, mothers are experts at rhetorical questions. They ask things like this, what's wrong with you? The clear statement being made, Something is wrong with you. Do you want me to? And then some terrible negative consequence that, of course, no child would ever want. James is being a bit rhetorical to set himself up. He's being diagnostic. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, this is one of several words that we're going to have to understand according to what James's readers would have understood. Because currently in the United States, the only thing worth living for is passion. Follow your passion. Boy, I've been to so many high school commencements and 800 graduates are all told to go follow their passion. And I always ask myself, I wonder if there's enough passion in the world so that every single kid here can find his or hers. We mean something different by what James means. In fact, the translators of my, the Bible I'm reading from have a footnote. 
they explain that the Greek word is pleasures. And in the New Testament, if you're the kind that keeps notes, this word, passions or pleasures, is where we get our English word, hedonism. What's a hedonist? A hedonist is someone who has decided philosophically and practically that the only thing worth living for is their own pleasure. Let me ask you, would you want to be friends with someone like that? No. You wouldn't want to marry someone like that. You wouldn't want to be a friend or a child or a parent to a hedonist because they're telling you on the front side, the minute this relationship ceases to give me pleasure, we're done. And James says the source of your quarrels and your fights is this. You have a self-seeking desire for pleasure, for personal satisfaction in each and every one of your hearts. And because you all feel this way, that's why you're fighting each other. And what else is there? Anyone who's ever been in a family knows how hard it is to get along day after day if everyone in the family decides that what they want matters most. There can't be peace. There can't be joy. There won't be for long. What is James telling us here? Just two thoughts from James. He's going to show you the problem before he shows you the solution. James says that living for selfish pleasure ruins everything. If you live only for yourself, you'll make yourself and everyone around you miserable. And here he gives you a survey of the damage. This kind of self-seeking, of selfishness, ruins everything beginning with relationships. Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. Boy, took a turn, didn't it? What's going on here? Are they actually killing each other? I think in context, it's very unlikely that James is saying that these persecuted Jewish Christians have actually risen up and violently started killing one another. But that's where anger, that's where quarreling, that's where fighting leads. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The first thing that self-seeking does is ruin the relationships around you. At the end of this paragraph, he's going to tell them, he's going to end where he began. Look down to verse 11, please. Here's what they're doing. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? We'll come back to that, but James begins and ends talking about the way they treat one another, and he says at the end, the reason you're fighting and judging one another is you're each putting yourself in the position of God. You're not setting out to obey what God says, you're actually appointing yourself as a judge over your brother who understands the law perfectly, and you're standing in God's place judging the people around you. Has anybody ever done that? I don't think she would mind me telling you. 
This really came home to me after the first service. Someone came to me and said, I need to ask your forgiveness. A few weeks ago, I killed you in my heart. (laughs) You're laughing, but she was serious. And she went on to tell me what she thought I had done and what she had thought about me doing it and that she had also told others. I really appreciated the confession because it showed me that she had a heart that was sensitive toward God, and she saw exactly the dynamic that James is speaking about here. I was so grateful to have that conversation. It showed me that God's Word was at work, and it was very refreshing to know that she only killed me in my heart and now was asking forgiveness for it, and we're I didn't know we were having trouble, but now we're back at peace. (laughs) That's how it should work in a family. Because we're self-seeking in the center, in the core of our being, until we are utterly like Jesus, there will always be a part of us that tells us over and over again, you first, you first, you first, you first, you first, you first. That's an exhausting way to be married. It's an exhausting way to be a friend. It's an exhausting way to be a child. It pulls families and churches and friendships apart. And James says, this is all because the people at war are at war. They have no peace. Though they have peace with God, they're not at peace with each other because they're seeking their own pleasure, their own satisfaction, their own advancement. It destroys relationships, and not only that, it also neutralizes prayer. Look at the end of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. People who are self-involved and seeking their own advancement will generally forget to bring God into the equation. Why pray to God when you're in charge? We only pray about the things that we know are out of our control if we think we call the shots and we understand things correctly and we need only to be obeyed, not we have nothing to learn and nothing to apologize for, that those damages will not only be horizontal between people, they'll also be vertical with God. You'll forget to pray altogether. Or, he says in verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Here you're being told something really simple and straightforward and practical. God does not heed, does not answer selfish prayers. Neither do wise parents. If you're trying to raise a child, let's make him five because they're both sweet and mean at the age of five. Let's make it three. Three is the toughest age of all. If you have a three-year-old, hang in there. It really does get better. People talk about the terrible twos. It's not that bad at two. A three-year-old is worse because he's a two-year-old with one year of experience on the job. (laughs) But a parent sees a selfish, self-seeking, quarrelsome, vindictive three-year-old. A wise parent doesn't keep all the good stuff turned on, doesn't keep giving the child everything they desire. You don't reward selfishness, you try to thwart it. You try to cut it off, you try to rechannel it back to loving the family and doing what mommy says and not treating little brother that way. God is not a foolish parent. 
You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Selfishness kills and ruins everything, not only relationships, but also prayer. And then it gets much worse. These next few verses are some of the hardest in the New Testament. Now, I'll just tell you on the front side, if you're ever going through a tough time and you're looking for a word of comfort, James is not necessarily the place to look. But it's good for you. It's good for you in the same way that a surgeon's scalpel is good for you if it will take cancer out of your body and save you. It's painful, but it's life-giving. James is going to get to the heart of the issue. The symptom is they're fighting with each other. They're killing each other, at least mentally. They're slandering one another. They're standing in the place of God over one another. So rather than a family or a congregation, you have a little assembly of gods who all think they're right. What a miserable, miserable community that would have been. And here's the problem. Here's the heart of the issue, verse 4. You adulterous people. Wow. That's quite a word. As a pastor, you hear all kinds of stories and are called into all kinds of difficult situations. The worst things I've ever witnessed and heard that did not involve someone's actual death all have to do with adultery. Because adultery means that somebody broke their vows. But there was a wedding and there were pictures and there were promises. There were literal public vows. At the end of the traditional ceremony that I usually officiate, each person says, I promise to keep myself to you alone until death separates us. And adultery shatters all of that. Why is James speaking of adultery? The verse explains it. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself a what? An enemy of God. Well, that's strange. James says, here's the heart of the issue. The reason you can't get along with one another is become you have become spiritually adulterous, not with each other, but with God. You've turned your back on God, and here's why. You have decided to become a friend of the world, and you can't have it both ways. You cannot have friendship with the world and a loving relationship with God at the same time. You must choose friendship with the world and therefore act as an enemy of God, or you must choose to love God and therefore turn your back on the world. And this is one of the hard things about this passage. One of the pastors said this morning at prayer, I'm really glad you're here and preaching this week, and yes, here I am. Here's one of the difficulties. Doesn't God love the world? Here you're told not to be a friend of the world. But doesn't the most famous Bible verse of all say that God loves the world? You know this, John 3, 16? What's it say? For God so loves the world. So, what's going on here? Well, something very common in language, Greek or English. 
We use the same word to mean different things all the time. What God loves is people. God loves the human beings who inhabit the world. Pastor Jim is always saying when we deal with some difficult thing or see some evil thing in the news, he's almost always saying something like, imagine all that God sees and knows every single day. You ever turn the news off because it was just too dark and depressing? That's just a slice. That's just two minutes. Imagine seeing all the evil of the world and knowing it by detail, down to the minute, down to the word and the evil gesture. Imagine knowing that all the time. God knows everything. There's no time with Him. He's eternal and all-knowing, and that means that He knows every evil, wicked thing that happens in the world and inside every human heart. And that world Not the people who have created that world, not the people who have been enslaved by sin and are building that system. It is the people he loves in spite of their sin, but the world that James has in mind is this. The core issue, James says, is our love for the world. And the world, here's my definition, the world as James uses it here is the values, the standards, the systems, and the priorities that oppose God. Every bit of this culture in every human culture has been ruined by sin. That's why life is so difficult. That's why every election, every new school board, every new initiative at your company, every single new effort promises much more than it can ever deliver. They said, we found it. We've had the educational, the technological breakthrough, and this is the one that's going to take us where we all want to be. And older people tend to be a little jaded and a little cynical because they know from long years of experience, none of those promises come true. As a pastor friend of mine says, it gets really human really fast. And the best systems in the world are always brought down by the human factor because human beings built them. And there is, there are values, there are standards, there are systems and priorities in the world that oppose God. That is what James says you cannot and should not befriend. I could put a lot more words up there. Values, standards, systems, and priorities that oppose God. I could also say aesthetics. There's a dozen words or more that I could use in this simple little homemade definition of what James means by the world, but he means the system that sinful people built to run the world and the culture around them. It all calls out to Christians every day saying real satisfaction, real pleasure, real purpose, real meaning is found right here. In the 21st century, as highly sexualized as our culture is, a huge part of the world system is this. If it comes to your physical pleasure, if it feels good to you, you do it so long as nobody gets hurt. That's just about the only moral standard left that everybody can agree on. And here's the shocking thing, even though everybody or many, many people at least would say, as long as nobody gets hurt, I've made an observation. 
people keep getting hurt. People step outside of the boundaries and the laws and the blessings that God has provided in His Word and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and think they know better and befriend the world and adopt its values, try to aspire to its standards, embrace its systems, take on their priorities, and all of these things, James says, are opposed to God. John said it perhaps even more clearly. Read this with me. This is the Apostle John talking about the same system. Read this with me, please. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There it is. James and John are both delivering the same message. You can't love God when your heart is set on the world. This is why when I was growing up, and I almost gave up on it because it was always so harsh and it sounded so legalistic, the pastors, when I was growing up, would talk about the church being worldly. What does that mean? If they were right, if they weren't being harsh or legalistic, what they were diagnosing is that the spirit of the world, the values of a world and a system and a culture that do not know God have infected God's family and made Christians love the same things that God is trying to rescue them from. And one of the most painful and profitable things you could do this afternoon after you hear this message is ask God sincerely to show you in what ways you have loved the world. In what ways you having a wonderful, beautiful, holy, blessed, heavenly Father have set your heart on the very values that kept you away from Him in the first place. And finally, there's even more tension. Verse 5, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? Hmm. That verse I just read, verse 6, one of the hardest verses in the New Testament. Two reasons. James says, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Two reasons that's a hard verse. First is, you can't find that verse in your Old Testament. It's in quotes in your translation, but you cannot find those exact words anywhere in the Old Testament. What's going on here? James is summarizing something that the Old Testament teaches. He's not quoting chapter verse, he's summarizing as a Bible teacher might, as you've heard me do perhaps many times, saying, the Bible teaches, the Bible tells us, and here's just a little summary statement in my own words. See, what chapter verse is that? Well, actually, I was trying to pull together about nine different places. That's what is happening here. But the meaning is even more difficult. He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. What's that? What spirit? Some people think, and they may be right, that He's referring to the Holy Spirit. That God the Father, to save us the moment we trusted Jesus, His Son, gave us the Holy Spirit, made the Holy Spirit dwell within us, and the Holy Spirit that is in us is jealous for this relationship, wants our relationship, our walk with God to be right and true. That might be what he's referring to, but I don't think so. 
And the translators here have actually kind of leaned in that direction. Did you notice spirit is not capitalized in your translation and in mine? Now, there's no uppercase and lowercase in Greek. The translators have to make a decision. I think here is what James is saying. You, a human being loved by God and redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus, are in a whole other category from every other part of creation. I have bad news, pet owners. God doesn't care about your dog the way He cares about you. Jesus didn't die for dogs. Say, so you hate dogs? No. I own the world's best dogs, so I can't possibly hate dogs. My dog's so awesome, he has his own Instagram page. I'm not trying to get traffic for him. Please don't look right now. But my dog is fantastic. When he's gone, we miss him. In fact, at our house at this point, if anybody says, I love you, there's a 50-50 chance they're talking to the dog, not another human being who lives in the home. But my dog has something that the rest of the family does not have. He does not have a spirit within him that can relate to God. Human beings, the crown of God's creation, were given a spirit, were made in a way that human beings alone have self-awareness and God-awareness so they can love and trust and have a relationship with God on a daily basis. And the absence of that relationship is where guilt and shame came, come from. That's why your conscience accuses you. God gave you a spirit that is in you, and it says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us. And that's another problem. Isn't jealousy always bad? Jealousy almost always has a negative connotation in our society because it always conjures up ideas of abuse. And we tell young people, you don't want to date someone who's jealous. They'll be controlling. They'll be abusive. They'll ruin your life. Is God jealous? Careful before you answer. There's a verse specifically that God, speaking of himself, says, my name is jealous. What's that about? It's about relationship. It's about love. God made you with a capacity, and because you were made in His image and He has set His redemptive love on you, God desires to have a loving, faithful, non-adulterous, close-hearted relationship with all the people He saved. And only human beings can do that, and God yearns for it with a holy, right, protective, wonderful, beautiful jealousy. And here's the illustration, I think, that will make it make sense. For those of you who are parents, suppose you have small children, but you also have a next-door neighbor who is very kind and many times over more wealthy than you are, and he treats your kids with such kindness and generosity that in a, about a year's time after moving into that house, you realize your children have no time and no respect for you. They only have love and only want to spend time with the neighbor. Are you happy about that? No, you're brokenhearted. You're rightfully angry and distrustful and fearful of the man next door because he's alienated the affections of your children. 
Same reason spouses are quick to fear and quick to anger when they notice that he or she won't stop texting your spouse and calls at all times and sends all kinds of private messages and you've noticed that your spouse is now continually talking about how smart or beautiful or put together or whatever it is this other person is, what's happening there. If you have any loyalty and love for your spouse and yourself at all, you're indignant. And you say things like, hey, 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 you're married to me. Hey, I'm your dad. You don't belong next door. That's not our family. That is a right jealousy because love, when it is proper and right and seeks the good of the other, is always offended and grieved when affection is alienated. Affection and loyalty and trust are stolen and taken from where it should be to a relationship that it is not. All of that, James says, is what God wants for you. And the reason you can't get along and the reason you don't pray or the reason you pray and ask for the wrong things is for this very simple reason. Your hearts have drifted not away from each other. No, first they drifted away from God, and that's why you can't get along with one another. And then finally, and James is done and I'm done, finally he, apl- he applies the cure. Verse 6, Thank God, literally, after all that, verse 6, but He gives more grace. Wow. In spite of all that disloyalty that I've ever felt toward God, all the trouble that it's ever caused me with my family and with you and with other friends, in spite of all that wreckage and all that damage, that living for self does, destroying relationship, canceling prayer, drawing our heart away to the world and away from God. In the middle of all that, God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Now, verse 6, that is a quote from the Old Testament, and that verse shows up all across the Bible, Old Testament to New. It's very important that you understand it. It's one of the most important spiritual principles in the entire Bible. If you're proud, what will God do? That was very unconvincing. We're looking at verse 6. If you're proud, what will God do? He will oppose you. He will not only remove His blessing, He will actively oppose you. Why? Because selfishness sends people to hell. Selfishness makes Christians asked as if they knew nothing of heaven. Selfishness makes the children of God act as if they had no heavenly father at all. So James's advice and all the rest of it, I think, are just explanations and applications of verse 7. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Here's the way back. Number two, God's grace provides a way back for us, and the way back from our selfishness The selfishness of sin is our submission to God. That is the heart of this passage. That selfishness in sin, sinful selfishness, selfish sinfulness, any way you want to have it, living for yourself ruins and wrecks everything. And the way back from that is to submit yourself, not to yourself, that's what you've been doing, but to submit yourself to God. And there we run into another cultural problem. How many of you like to submit to stuff? 
The very word is distasteful in America now. Submit. Ugh. Nah, man. You be you. You do your own thing, queen. <laughs> Go on with your bad self. You express the glory and the beauty that is you. Listen, we got so self-centered that for a while I talked to a very salty, lifelong soldier who's in charge of new recruits at a big, big, big army post in the middle of the country. And we laughed together about an old army recruiting motto, which was this, an army of one. That's the most nonsensical thing ever said. You show up to basic training and tell them it's all about you, and you have shown up to be an army of yourself. It's not going to work. Then they changed it. Same idea, though, listen to people appeal to American selfishness. The army can make you be all that you can be. What the army wants, that doesn't matter. What do you want to be? We can do that. Come on. Then they get you inside and you find out it's a whole other story once you're on the other side of the door. They draw you in with selfishness. That's why James is so countercultural. In America, we've perfected selfishness, but it's never been in the human heart. That's why James says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. You submit yourself to Him, He will restore, He will save, He will bless. The rest of it is just, it's just application. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and He will flee from you. As you submit yourself to God, you'll resist the devil. And the devil that has deceived you, he'll run from you. Measure your life by these next three verses. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. The promise is always the same. Repentance leads to restoration. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to warning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will, what? Exalt you. Did you get it? The way up is down. The way to the life you thought you could choose for yourself, that you've been ignoring God, praying wrongly, not praying at all, fighting other people for, the way to the life that God wants, the only life worth living, is not you clawing and fighting your own way because you've decided that you stand as a judge and you will decide what is right and good. The way forward, the way up is always down. Repentance leads to restoration and humility leads to exaltation. And if you look very carefully at verses 8 and 9, look just at verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Can I ask you, when's the last time you were genuinely sorrowful over sin? Those two verses really hit me this week. Because I can remember other better days in my walk with Jesus when God would show me my sin and I was more brokenhearted maybe than I have been in a while. Why? Because God hates sin the way we hate cancer and death. Nobody wants any part of it. 
Nobody tolerates it. God won't tolerate it. That's why He sent His Son Jesus to die in our place. That's why He extended this loyalty, fatherly relationship that welcomes you into His family and is genuinely brokenhearted when He sees us turning away from Him, loving and aspiring to the values and the priorities of the very world that crucified His Son that He rescued us from. So, here's what James is telling us. Selfishness ruins everything. Submitting to God restores us to Him and to all the blessings He has for us. That's the message. To stop choosing your own path, to stop thinking you know better, to humble yourself before the Lord and submit yourself to Him. It will bring you back to the heart of God. It will give you peace with your brothers and sisters. It will bring you peace with all like-minded Christians. Because submitting to God and only submitting to God restores us to Him and the blessings He has for us. Let's pray together. If I could just give you a, a moment. That's a heavy passage. Christian, are you... Are you in a spot where you're mournful for sin? When you remember the things that Jesus saved you from that you still indulge in, does it break your heart? If not, could I use the very words of James and invite you back and invite you to submit yourself to God? How are you going to come back? What are you going to restore? Like this sister in Christ who was so candid with me. That was a blessing. What's been in your heart against God and against others? And if you don't know Jesus, if you're not sure that this Jesus I've been telling you about is your Savior, can I invite you right now to turn away from yourself and your own plans and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, please save me. You don't need magic words. There are no such. There's just a move of repentance, of turning away from sin and yourself and entrusting yourself to Jesus. These two who were baptized this morning, they took that step in the past. That's what they were showing you in baptism. What about you? If you need Christ, call out to Him right now in prayer and ask Him to save you. Please take a bulletin or find one fill out the card and let us know that you've done that this morning. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would find us faithful to you. To you, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not adulterous, not disloyal, not captivated by the values of the world, but friends of yours, children of yours, people who love you first and most and who love each other and treat each other kindly because we love you so much. If there's a single person here, Lord, who needs to be saved, I pray that this would be the moment in the morning that they do that. That they would turn back to you. Discover your salvation, your exaltation. Thank you for the privilege I'll have in a moment to meet with people, Lord, who may be new to our church. Thank you for bringing them here. May they feel welcome and loved by you and by us. In Christ's name, amen.